Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, health, medicine, and bioscience edition. Uh, It's my job to find the geniuses of people in their various fields. I've interviewed over 2,000 researchers, scientists, clinicians, etc. So today I have Larry Simpson. He's a professor emeritus at UCLA. Uh, He worked on microbiology, immunology, and molecular genetics. So, Larry, thanks for coming. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Yeah. Well, tell me what's um. Well, I mean, nowadays, are you still doing research, or what's your what's your status now? And if not, we'll we'll talk about your learnings over the years. No, I was at uh, UCLA for about 47 years, and I retired in 2014. And um, I'm still writing oh, wow. papers, but I don't have a lab anymore. I closed it. Okay. Well, I've been alive for 40 plus years, but I haven't uh, haven't been involved in the field nearly as long as you have. So. Okay. So what's um what's the focus of your uh, of your research over time? Like, what does it look like today? And uh, you know, what are you writing papers about right now? Well, I, I think uh, we've made a, a few uh, interesting discoveries, uh, and they all relate to the unusual mitochondrion of a certain type of protozoal parasite called trypanosomes, also another name is Leishmania, and mm. it's got it's such a bizarre and interesting phenomenon that I decided to uh, study it. And I've spent my whole career studying this. So what's different about the mitochondria of this parasite versus uh, our mitochondria, for instance? Oh, it's it's incredibly different. The, uh, the Inside the mitochondria, there's a huge mass of DNA. And in fact, it made the, the organelle is called the kinetoplast because it's at the base of the flagellum. And people thought it had something to do with uh, motility. And when we isolated this DNA and looked at it in the electron microscope, we saw 10,000 mini circles all linked together like a, a coat of mail. You know, it's called catenation, and they produce a, a very large thing we call a network. And, uh, and then there, so there are two types of molecules. There are uh, large ones called maxi circles, and there are about 20 to 40 of those, and they're also catenated. And the small ones, which are about 1,000 bases, and they are called mini circles. And uh, in, in human mitochondria, there's a, there's about, there's a DNA, but it's not nothing like this. And it, it, it codes about 18 genes. And, and the trypanosome mitochondria also codes about 18 genes, but some of them, about 12 of the 18 are what I call cryptogenes in that they have uh, mistakes. They have what are called frame shifts. So the reading frame gets out of whack and they can't get translated proteins. Um, and so that's what got us into it way, way back. And when I started working in the lab and, uh, so, so you're saying that 12 out of the 18 genes, do they have any function? I mean, it's, it'll be odd for an organism, organism to keep that many that don't work. They, they don't work, but they can be corrected. And that's what the, um, the whole interesting phenomenon is. It's called RNA editing where the transcripts of these cryptogenes are corrected by the, precise insertion and sometimes deletion of uridine residues. 
and this overcomes the frame shifts and allows the RNA to be translated. So I think it's a very novel okay. phenomenon. Very oh, so then it's a, it's a novel fix instead of making sure that the DNA is right and then the transcription is either right or wrong. Exactly. This one, the transcription is always wrong, but then outside of the transcription process, there's correction. Exactly. So there are, huh. two, ty- there are two types of genomes. There's the, the mitochondrial genome, which consists of genes and cryptogenes. And then you have the, um, the other genome, the minicircle genome, which I didn't get to yet. It, it actually encodes a novel type of RNA that we discovered, and we coined the word guide RNAs. So the, okay, so where is the corrective mechanism being produced from the, uh, the nuclear DNA? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, most of the corrective mechanism is from the nuclear DNA. It's, it, but in the mitochondrion, you have these uh, enzymes which form complexes, and they are the ones that, um, well, we, we, we solved the mechanism after some working on it for a few years. And it turned out to be that the guide RNAs, their property is they hybridize to the, what we call the pre-edited messenger RNA before editing starts. And they then they guide complexes which contain enzymes to this site and uh, the, the, there's then a nuclease that cleaves the messenger RNA at that precise site. And then there's a uridyl transferase that adds U's at the three prime end. That's it's one end of the, of the RNA after the cleavage. And then there's an RNA ligase that ligates the two ends together. And so that's the way you've got one U inserted at one site. But what was found out was that it's not just one U. Sometimes it's the first editing that was discovered was uh, four U's at three sites that overcame a one, minus one frame shift. And But then a new type of editing was discovered called pan editing, where it's hundreds of U's at hundreds of sites. The The gene itself cannot be recognized at all. And uh, and so we, we just call that pan editing over editing over the whole gene. It's, it's as if a gene is made de novo. So you, oh, okay. So you, you figured out the mechanism, but when you look at it from a... 10,000 foot view, what, what does this imply to you? Why is there this you know, corrective process instead of doing it traditionally, traditionally meaning how other animals do? That's the most common question I've gotten in lectures throughout the years. Um, but let me just add one more uh, fact that may be interesting and make more sense. We discovered that the mini circles actually code guide RNAs. They encode these RNAs. And so the whole function of the mini circle is to produce these small RNAs that are that have the information for where editing occurs and uh, and why do they have it? That's an unanswered question. I mean, what we've done is we've looked at um, we we've gone back in evolution and we've looked at um, kinetoplast protozoa they're called that are uh, more ancient and we found this phenomenon <coughs> excuse me occurring in all of these except that. The, the, some of them don't have uh, many circles in a network. Instead, they have two large type of molecules. One encodes the genes and the cryptogenes, and the other, the guide RNAs. So every kinetoplast protozoa we've looked at has this phenomenon. So I, th- I think it says, and we've looked at other or- organisms that evolved around that time, such as euglena, and they don't seem to have it. So we think that it's something that evolved in the, in the early uh, eukaryotic cells, these these protozoa that became parasites after the host evolved because they evolved first as, as uh, free living creatures and um, why they have it. I think it's one of these cases where something gets fixed 
in in the in genetics, uh, there must have been mistakes during transcription, and the organisms found that to survive they could take pre-existing enzymes that were probably used for mismatch repair, and they use them to repair the RNA that's that's been damaged by this uh, the damaged DNA, and and the re repair turns out to be insertion and deletion of uridine residues at precise sites. Um, and so I think that that's what fixed it. Once the guide RNA evolved, it couldn't go back. And so these organisms uh, became fixed in this process. So it's, it's novel, it's, it's interesting, but it's, uh, it's, I think it's understandable, but it's, we don't know exactly what happened at early time. Is there any way that this could be translated and turned into a therapy for people or animals somehow to uh, alter gene expression or to, you know, yeah, I mean, to correct for um, genetic defects, for instance? Well, a matter, as a matter of fact, it already is. Uh, first of all, it's a novel phenomenon that's not present in any of the human host or the animal host. And anytime you find that, it, it, it provides a window, an opening for development of a rational chemotherapy, because you can develop drugs that don't have any effect on the host, but can kill the parasite. So that's one thing. Uh, and what it turns out that there's a, there's a um, thing called CRISPR-Cas editing that's, that's been developed recently by people like Jennifer Dudna at, at Berkeley. And uh, they use guide RNAs. They use the same word, guide RNAs. And what they have are synth synthetic RNAs that guide the, uh, the CRISPR to editing sites in DNA. And then they can insert nucleotides, remove nucleotides, change nucleotides. And it's a fantastic uh, advance in, in DNA technology. But it's, I'm not saying it's, it's exactly like the trypanosome editing, but it's, it's the same principle. So um, are there any other parasites or any other living creatures that have this mechanism or does it seem to be restricted literally to just leishmanias? Well, there are, there are a lot of other types of editing. In fact, humans have a type of RNA editing which involves um, changes of single nucleotides. It's called A to I, adenosine to inosine, and inosine binds like guanosine, like G. And uh, this is very widespread, and it turns out to be involved in uh, the formation of antibodies, of cells that, that make antibodies. Um, and then there are all kinds of other editing events that occur in, in other organisms. In, in lower organisms, uh, there's one called physarum, a slime mold, and it has insertion editing, deletion editing, uh, modification editing, and so on. And uh, we don't know much about that organism. Um, but in terms of the trypanosome editing, it, it turned out to be a, it was just fantastic cornopia uh, of uh, biological information. I mean, it turned out to be so bizarre and exotic that uh, I, I spent my whole career working on this. And we learned quite a bit of quite a bit about it. So, what's um, where is the driving force? I mean, it's a this is like a really big question, but it's like asking where is the life in the cell? Where is the driving force for this to happen? I mean, is it just happening everywhere through selection pressure? You believe, or is there a, a specific source, a command and control that is making decisions on how to alter things to achieve objectives within a cell? Well, it's a difficult question, but uh, it's required for viability. 
if the cells do not edit, they don't make these proteins and they die. So there's a quite a, a good selective pressure to maintain this process in, in this uh, organisms. And uh, as I said, we don't know how it evolved, but we think that it evolved very early in evolution uh, because uh, we don't see it in related organisms and we do see it in a free living kinetoplastic protozoa that we looked at. Um, so I think it's one of these things in evolution that when something changes, it, it can't go backwards. Once you have the guide RNAs and uh, that's the way they have to do it. And, and so the selective pressure for this is, is very strong because they need it for viability. So what's, um, you figured out the mechanism and everything, but um, again, have you been approached to use the technology again for other types of interventions? I mean, some people are using, like you said, Jennifer Doudna, you know, guide RNAs, et cetera. But is there, um, I don't know, are you able to, to flesh out a very well-developed mechanism or proposal on how this can be used in, in people to treat, again, various genetic disorders? Or is yeah. it just kind of up to other people to figure that out? Well, we've done a, a bit of that. Uh, and I let me tell a little anecdote. I Way back in the 80s, I got a phone call from a friend at Caltech, and he said, would you like to look whether um, there is Chagas disease, which is caused by one of these cells, uh, it's called uh, Terpanosoma cruzi, in, in 4,000-year-old mummies from Chile. So I said, sure, I, I'm, we're interested in these many circles, and we've been actually studying them from, from Terpanosoma cruzi. And so he sent me over some mummy tissue, and we tried to isolate DNA, and it was a total disaster. It was just a black goo. And then suddenly I realized we could use this to detect these trypanosomes in human patients, and perhaps we could develop a, a very sensitive diagnostic method using the DNA. And so, and we did, we developed this. We found that we could amplify DNA from the uh, mini circles. And since there are 10,000 mini circles per cell, there are a large number of targets that so makes it very, very sensitive. So the method we developed, we can detect probably two parasites in 20 mils of blood. It's ultra sensitive. And it's specific because of the mini circles. Uh, we, we can actually tell different types of, of parasites, different strains, because the mini circles, remember, have a conserved region that's involved in replication. And then the variable region that encodes the guide RNAs. And it turns out there are multiple classes of mini circles that have different guide RNAs. Um, our old laboratory strain had like 24 different classes and they acted in, 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 in uh, editing the genes that I told you about. But we found it was a defective. It had been in culture for over 60 years. And we think in that time it lost some genes in editing. And so we got a recently isolated strain and that had 114 different minicircle classes or guide RNAs. And, uh, and then we, oh, wow. sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, go ahead. I'm just saying, wow. Okay. Well, then we, I, I collaborated with a, um, bioinformatics person in, in Edinburgh, and he developed a simple model that could explain this. And it turns out that the whole reason is that the mini circles are randomly um, insert all over the network. They're present in random locations, totally random. And it has to do with how the how this stuff is replicated. I don't have time to go into that, but it, it it's... So when you say random locations, what do you mean? Where in the cell? I mean... There's the mini circle sequence classes are not together. They're just scattered all over the network by catenation. 
Okay. okay. And so when the cells divide, the network goes through a scission. It just cuts in half. And that turns out you get a stochastic loss of low copy number minicircles. And this actually occurred in our laboratory strain. We, we see from year to year, we had frozen away them in liquid nitrogen. And we looked at the uh, relative copy number of different minicircle classes, and it varied tremendously from year to year. And we think it lost the editing for five of these genes. There are five other genes I didn't talk about that are pan-edited, and probably because the protein products are not required in culture. And so there's no selective pressure to maintain the editing system in those organisms. And uh, so, I mean, that, that's, that's the story. Uh, How about Ushmania itself? What does the disease do, and how many people does it affect each year? Oh, the disease in Leishmania, it's both, uh, it's called, there's one that's cutaneous. It causes skin lesions that don't go away, and sometimes it metastasizes to the nose and the, uh, the mouth, and you get, uh, it's, it's called mucocutaneous leishmaniasis, and it's incurable. There's no treatment for it whatsoever, and uh, the people that get it are the people that go into the forest, like soldiers uh, cutting down trees or working in the forest. The, tra- the vector is called the sand fly, and, uh, and they get this disease. And then there's a type of disease prevalent in India and other places it, where it's in epidemic form, and it's called visceral leishmaniasis. The parasites go into the spleen and liver and things, and they cause tremendous disease. disease. And uh, it's fatal if untreated. There, some treatments are beginning to be developed, but it turns out that most of the drugs and then there's another type of parasite in Africa that causes African sleeping sickness and it's transmitted by the tsetse fly. And I tell the students that the trypanosome is probably responsible for the existence of wild animals in Central Africa because the disease kills domestic cattle, but it doesn't kill wild animals. And so I, I give them this conundrum. I say, <laughs> you know, if, if we want to get rid of all the wild animals, you, all you have to do is, is get more domestic cattle in there and, and the whole Central Africa will turn into a desert. Um, so it's, it's a question. It's unanswerable. But it just tickles their imagination, I think. Have you studied the various types of leishmania, both in their um, uh, intermediate hosts and then, and then obviously the definitive host in people? But, you well, know, what's the, it like for them in the fruit fly, or sorry, the sand fly, what's it like for them in the intermediate host? Right. The the, the uh, sp- form that lives in the sand fly is the one we grow in culture. And uh, in the host, the parasites go into macrophages and they live inside macrophages, which are in the immune system of, of humans. And, uh, and they go through and then they, they break out and they go into sand flies. It's a very simple life cycle. The Africa trypanosome is much more complex, the life cycle. It's in the tsetse fly as the vector and in the bloodstream of the human the parasite lacks any mitochondrial enzymes. It lives by glycolysis. And then it pre-develops a partial mitochondrial transport chain and the tsetse fly takes up the blood and the parasites differentiate into forms that have well-developed mitochondria. And they go through about three or four stages in in the tsetse fly and wind up in the salivary glands and the proboscis where they're then injected into an animal that the tsetse fly bites. So yeah, the life cycle is very interesting. People have studied 
whether editing occurs, and it turns out to occur in both stages, but it's, it's regulated. Only certain genes are edited in the bloodstream stage and only certain in the uh, insect stage. Right, that's why I wanted to ask you what, what happens in each um, host or each stage. Okay, interesting. I should, let me tell you one thing. Uh, at one point, you've asked about the back, my background. It turns out I got interested in parasites in a very unusual way. I, I was in graduate school, didn't know what I wanted to do. I was at a place called Rockefeller University in New York. And after my first year, I saw a thing on the bulletin board that said American students, researchers wanted in the Amazon. And so I said, that's for me. So I wrote them and they invited me down there. <laughs> and, uh, and I went and I took a crash course in Portuguese and I bought a book in, on parasitology, which I read on the airplane. I got down there and the whole project was to capture animals in, in the forest, bring them into the laboratory in a city called Manaus, which had no roads to it at that time. It was about a thousand miles up the Amazon and then look for blood parasites. And we did that. Um, and I didn't find any, but I found a lot of ectoparasites and worms and other things. And I really got interested in these organisms. So when I got back to Rockefeller, I found the only parasitologist there, a fellow named Bill Traeger. And he said I could work in his lab for my PhD. And it turned out he had been working on this organelle called the kinetoplast. And he told me, look, we don't know much about it. We know it has DNA. We know it's a mitochondria. And that's it. He said, why don't you do that for your thesis? So... 50 years later, I was, <laughs> I was still working on that. So That's really cool. Amazing story. What kind of um, interventions have you figured out, if any, for Lishmania, you know, whether it's in the, uh, the Santa Fly or it's in people, uh, any way to stop its spread or stop its effects? Well, my research has mainly been basic research on, on this unusual uh, editing process. Uh, we have not really... I think I tried once to screen a chemical library to see if we could find things, uh, and that didn't work out too well. But that's one thing people are doing. But I've not worked on any of that. I mean, I, some people are. There are laboratories that have taken this editing phenomenon because it's unique to the parasite and used it as a screen for drugs that can stop the parasite. And, and they people found a few drugs. turns out that the drugs for these trypanosome leishmania were developed long in the 30s, really. And most of them are extremely toxic. And uh, if they don't kill you, if the parasite doesn't kill you, the drugs will. And so there's a great need in, uh, they're especially in, they're in tropical countries mainly over the world. And uh, as I said, in some cases, they, they produce epidemics. Um, and there, are, there aren't met many drug companies interested because most of the people that have the diseases are very poor and they can't buy drugs. And so it's not been a big uh, thing that American drug companies work on very much. It's, it's what we call neglected diseases. But I, I haven't done any of that myself. I've mainly done basic research on this RNA modification phenomenon. Does Leishmania uh, have viruses or phages, or I don't know what you'd call them in regards to a parasite, but do they have them and do they modulate this uh... Well, we don't know. There, there are parasites. There are uh, viruses. I actually published a paper on one of them, and we really don't know what they do and what they're, uh, whether they cause any problem in the cells or whatever. So there's not much known about that at all. Well, I would think there would have to be something that would 
cull the herds of leishmania otherwise it would go out of control i mean instead of just being limited by natural factors well the, you know, the they, host produces an immune response and in places where people get bitten by these sand flies almost every day and the tsetse flies also and after if they recover from the first stage of the disease then they get a, a, a type of immunity develops and so there's like a equilibrium between uh, the parasite and the host and uh and you find that throughout different types of parasites. The host. But you don't know if um, it would just be interesting to see what a virus would do in that, you know, inside the mitochondria of. Uh, well, the of virus is, is not in the mitochondria. The virus is in the cell. It goes in. But if it got in, if it got in. Yeah, we just don't know. We don't know. We have never found any virus in the mitochondria. Um, but uh, there is, this, as I said, there's a class of viruses that live in Leishmania, but uh, people don't really know what they do. What about, um, does Leishmania have its own like microbial attachment? Does it have its own microbiome? Uh, that's a good question. No, I mean, they're, they're single-celled organisms, protozoa, and they don't, they, I mean, some of them eat bacteria, um, hmm. but I don't know of any case where they have a microbiome. I mean, they have mitochondria. Mitochondria at one point in time, maybe two right. billion years ago, were bacteria. They were bacteria that evolved into mitochondria. Do they do they form uh, biofilms or any coordinated structures? Like, you know, when they when they infest a host, are they just sitting there side by side? Do they construct a matrix that they all well, hang depends, out in? Like you know. it depends on the species. Uh, as I said, Leishmania goes into macrophages in the host, and so it it sort of takes over the host genetic um, immunological system, um, and there's no biofilm at all. And then in, in trypanosoma, they live in the bloodstream. So they're in the circulating blood. And Leishmania also go into cells like this in the organs, internal organs, like the spleen and liver. Um, but no, there's no equivalent to biofilms that I know of. Okay. No, I was just wondering. Um, well, very good. What, uh, I know you sent me a whole bunch of papers, but for listeners, what's, how can they dip their toe in and start to learn about uh, Leishmania and, you know, the work that you're talking about, where can they go to find out more? Well, I, I wrote an online course when I started teaching students molecular parasitology because the, there didn't exist any textbooks. So they can go to my online course and I can um, give you, and they could start reading that. I have chapters on different, okay. all the different parasites and editing. <clears throat> and all, so they, all right. Well, very good. Well, Larry, I mean, it's really super interesting what you've been working on. Um, Hopefully, you know, maybe I've given you a few more things to work on for the next 50 years, but uh, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so, yeah, thank you for coming. Uh, any last words or uh, you think we've covered, uh, you know, at least the beginnings of it? No, I think we've covered uh, most of, um, I mean, it's, it's an interesting phenomenon and I think you've covered it uh, pretty well in detail with your questions. All right, great. Well, Larry, thank you for coming. I really appreciate it. Sure. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.